Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, two dozen senators ask for temporary protective status for Venezuelans in the U.S. Can a Latino-oriented campaign for 2020 work in Julian Castro's favor? And Netflix closes the curtain on Cuban-American family sitcom One Day at a Time. It's our Latinx News Roundtable. Later in the show, Hidden in Plain Sight, women whose contributions in STEM, science, tech, engineering, and math, were never acknowledged or credited. But now, a new project has been uncovering woman-made contributions in the footnotes of STEM history. But first, joining me in the studio, Julio Ricardo Varela, co-host of the In the Thick podcast, Latino USA contributor, and founder of Latino Rebels. Welcome back, Julio. Hey, Callie. And Maria Kramer, reporter at the Boston Globe. Hello again, Maria. Hi, Callie. (laughs) I'm glad to have you both. Let's start right off with the 24 senators who've asked President Trump to protect Venezuelans by giving them temporary protective status. Now, this is very interesting to me on a couple levels. I think it's a wonderful political move. President Trump has come out in favor of ousting Maduro and supporting Guaido, the president um, who's claimed presidency anyway, and he's just issued stronger um, sanctions. So this would make sense, except, of course, if he agrees to that, then he has to kind of roll back his other TPS protective status that he just took away from other people. So what do you think? Yeah, I I think this is a really interesting development. It will be interesting to see how the president responds to it because, like you said, he has revoked TPS for Haitians. He has revoked TPS for the people of Honduras, um, El Salvador. These are people who are coming from countries um, where things are hardly stable, and yet he he insists that it's it's okay for them to go back. Uh, We know that in Venezuela um, the situation is unstable. He has said so, and he has called out the president. He supports the opposition. So if he says no to, to this request, to this demand, for TPS for Venezuelans, what is he saying? Is he saying that this country is stable for Venezuelans? It, it would certainly seem to be a contradictory position. Before you say anything, Julio, let's listen to this sound. This is from some of the recent clashes on the Venezuela-Colombia border. Let's just give everybody a sense of the intensity, and this has been going on and on and on. Yeah, Hmm. but it's also so complicated. Yes, it is. And it's really hard to explain Venezuela to American audiences, given the fact that, you know, it was one of the richest countries in South America. And then, you know, the United States did play a lot of, you know, interventionism. And also in the fact that, you know, President Hugo Chavez, there was a big coup attempt in 2003 and and Maduro has issues, right? And I think there's a lot of Venezuelans out there who will say that Venezuelans' problems, economic problems, were caused by Venezuelans. What's tough about the situation from a geopolitical standpoint is that 
when you have the United States sort of messing in Latin American politics for decades, it's very easy for Nicolas Maduro to be like, here come the Yankees, Mm -hmm. you know, imperialism. And actually, I would argue that Trump's policy of talking about every option on the table with intervention and possible war is only playing into Maduro's hands because Mm -hmm. it's very easy for Maduro to be like, look, it's Trump's fault. Poor me. So with that context, you have to look at this TPS situation as well, not only from the fact of the immigration policy of the White House, but also the fact that this is all political. Yeah. That there's yeah. nothing else about this. Marco Rubio, who is the only Republican senator who called for this extension of TPS, is perhaps, I would say, the most to the right of his policies with Venezuela. And if you think about it, you know, what happened in Cuba in the revolution Mm -hmm. and Rubio represents a lot of Cuban Americans and there's a lot of Venezuelan exiles that live in Southern Florida now in Doral, which is called Dorazuela, the Mm -hmm. town. And, and Rubio is very like, we got to do something. My last point, and I've written a lot about this. I wrote a piece for the Washington post about sort of how this issue is really being politicized is that it's hard to also look at the Venezuelan opposition as sort of these freedom fighters. What I will say is that there are a lot of progressives who who say, I can be anti-Trump and anti-Maduro, which is a little bit like mm, up is down yeah. and down is up. And right. I, I tried to do my best explaining Venezuela in the couple <laughs> minutes that we have. So, Maria, here's the thing that here's a down uh, to the ground question I have, which is um, we know pretty much that President Trump is everybody stay at home. Don't come here. But now since you're messing in this arena. Mm. He's in a position where if he were to grant protective status, he's saying, well, some immigrants can come here, not through the way I said they had to come. What does that mean then? Well, no, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's you know, like Julio said, it is very political. And um, also, what do you do with the people who are on the ground in Venezuela? And this is very unsettling, I think, for anybody who knows the history of American interventionism in countries like Venezuela, who say, I want the U.S. in here. I mm. want this to happen. You know, they're calling for it. They're right. people who are younger, right? right? They come from a younger generation. And all they've, ex- you know, what they've experienced now is the political instability under Maduro. But it it's, there is a, a cry for it. And uh, how do you respond to it? it? It is so complex. It has so many layers. And the granting of TPS uh, for Venezuelans who, you know, could have a very, you know, have a very good argument mm-hmm. for, for saying, look, I'm, I'm not safe there. Um, I need to be here. How do you fight against that when, you, when at the same time you're saying Maduro needs to be out? It's it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the next, uh, in the next uh, but this few days. Been going on for, like, it's I hard know. to tell. Like everyone thought that that the the Venezuelan military would turn over to Guaido when there was this big humanitarian aid and push nothing and nothing happened yeah, you know right. less so I, I just encourage people to when they when they talk about Venezuela they look at Venezuela it's not we're not talking the US revolutionary war here yeah, you know right. it's so many layers Follow me on Twitter and you can see a lot. <laughs> okay. Leo. Let's write a book based on your Twitter feed. <laughs> um, here's something else that uh, is complicated, but perhaps less so. Julio, you guys at Futura Media have been doing um, some pieces about uh, on the border. President Trump just announced, I guess it's, it's been clear, but he's announced again that the policy is we want to keep everybody who's trying to get in at the border in Mexico. Right. And so I was interested in the piece that you did about the unaccompanied minors being actually stranded there in Mexico and being, of course, at risk for other dangers you yeah, know, while it, they wait there. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was um, one of our latest Latino USA stories is called Stranded in Tijuana, and it, and it focuses on teenagers, Central American teenagers, who are in the only, I believe it's the only shelter for unaccompanied minors in Tijuana, and it's a y- YMCA. 
And so one of our reporters, uh, Jesse Alejandro Cottrell, went down there and talked to the kids. One of the things that we're doing at Futuro and uh, with Maria Hinojosa, myself and others, is to try to start humanizing a little bit of this story because I think it's very important when you start seeing, you know, the Homeland Security Secretary, Christian Nielsen, like going down on the border. It's like, oh, it's a humanitarian crisis. It's a national security crisis. Oh, everyone's coming. It's the invasion. But we're talking about humans. And I think we wanted to at least talk to these 16 and 17-year-old, 18-year-old boys. I'm a dad of a 16-year-old boy. You know, I think there's certain universal things about 16-year-old boys that go beyond borders in a lot of ways. And so to hear these boys talk about their fear, about this sort of fight or flight feeling that they're getting. Mm -hmm. Also, there was two murders in the shelter. Yeah, that's it. And how the boys are reacting to that and how there's this sense of exploitation and limbo and stress and just fear. And they're leaving their country. You know, they they talk about why they had to leave their country and the mother's like, you gotta go because your life's in danger. I just wish more of that conversation, and I'm talking in the, there's so much interest. I'm not talking about the work that Maria and uh, Kramer and I and other people do, but I I think we're kind of missing the humanity of this debate. And, And it's, so I think trying to get these stories out there and telling people that this is going on is important. What I think is helping the situation in a horrifying way is the most recent report that we had uh, about the kind of sexual abuse that's been had in a lot of these detention centers. And we know about these murders in this particular situation. And with the idea that more people will be held there, um, this is pretty bad. Exactly. And, mm-hmm. you know, what I loved about this piece, and I encourage you know anybody listening to go out and listen to it as well, is this is 30 minutes, 30 minutes focusing on teenagers. The stories of, of, of young children and their parents and the agony that they're going through is very, you know, poignant, and, and people have really responded to that. But we haven't really heard from the older kids, the kids who've come here by themselves, and are still children. I think you hear 16-year-old boy, and you might think to yourself, well, that's somebody who's developed and who's mature, and he's right. been through a lot, and he's come from this difficult right. country. So, But it's not this is a child mm-hmm. and the trauma that, that that these children have experienced I mean it, it's unthinkable it's unthinkable of somebody in my position somebody in Julio's position certainly Julio's son's position to consider so these stories are so critical to tell um, so that people understand the crisis at the border just beyond some of the stories that we're hearing on CNN ProPublica great organizations that have been doing good work but the focus hasn't really been on these kids and I was really grateful for that and it hasn't gone away I think people need to understand that just right. because it's moved off um, in fact I think Kristen Nielsen brought it back for a lot of people to remind them that, you know, this is yeah, still going on, by but the I way. But I think she's, you know. she's bringing, she's, mm. but this is the problem that yeah. I'm having with the framing that the government is doing right now. It's equating a humanitarian crisis to a national security crisis, yeah. which I would argue that if you go to that y, YMCA in that report, there's no national security crisis happening. There's just a bunch of scared young boys who are living through adolescence, who have escaped their country because they were going to die. And looking they, for they, asylum. And look, and looking for asylum. Mm-hmm. And because we have asylum laws that allow people to declare themselves, the national emergency is that we can't handle these asylum claims. That's the national emergency. It's not people, these kids, who are going to go and take over the country and create these acts of terror because that's how they're right. that's how they're being portrayed and i just think we have to stop for a second and understand it's like who are the new groups of people that are seeking asylum in this country because it has changed from 20 30 years ago where it might have been like you know more older male looking for work now it's basically families and mm-hmm. unaccompanied minors and that to me is just 
that's a humanitarian crisis, not a national security crisis. And if I may put a button on this it, it, to remind people that they have the right to seek asylum. Nobody said everybody gets it, but you have the right to come to seek it. That's in that's the law. That's U.S. immigration that's law. That's right. All right. So we just need to keep saying that. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Julio Ricardo Varela of Futuro Media and Latino USA and Maria Kramer of the Boston Globe. We're discussing the latest Latinx news you might have missed. Let's come home now to Massachusetts. I want to talk about the search right now for a superintendent for Boston schools. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is because the last go-around, we with short memories may remember, is that the candidate that everybody was backing was the Latino guy who didn't get the gig. And then, you know, shortly thereafter, Tommy Chang, who did get the gig, um, got... Some say pushed out, some say resigned, whatever. He's gone. And here we are once again back in a situation where we're looking for another superintendent. They've been transparent about who's in the pool. What's it looking like to you all? Uh, I think it's encouraging, um, right? I mean, you've mm-hmm. got a pool of 39 people. I think that's the number yeah. who've applied. Uh, you have uh, many of them are people of color. They're women. Um, you have, I think, four Latino candidates who are in the lead, 18 black uh, candidates um, as well. So it's a, it's an encouraging number. I think last time we did this search, there were it was in, somewhere in the 70s, but there's, there's some differences there that you have to, in terms of the candidate pool, but there's some differences there that you have to consider. Uh, one is that it was a much bigger period of time and we're doing things in a much more compressed period of time. So I, I, you know, I have to say, as a parent in the Boston Public School mm-hmm. uh, system, I was a little worried about this search because it, you know, it seems to me like one of the hardest, un- most unappealing jobs yeah. <laughs> out there is uh, to take the helm of a, of a major urban school system. So I'm encouraged by what I read in Jamie Vazquez's piece in the Globe about how the search is going. And by the way, our reputation isn't so great either for anybody who might be applying. Yeah, at this so point. another good point. You yeah, know, I, yeah. I, I was caught by the. I read reading the article. I I was intrigued by the fact that 10 of the candidates were from Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder, you know, just as someone that lives in the Boston metro area, that sometimes the outsider is (laughs) doesn't work when you come into like Boston and maybe understanding the Commonwealth's education system and what it really means to head up BPS. I'm just hoping that they're looking at other standards. And because it's so easy to be sort of the savior when you come in from a place that might not necessarily be the right situation. And I think Chang, like, it never felt right. Mm-hmm. I hope the right choice makes it. You know, we hired a Puerto Rican manager for the Red Sox, and we won the World Series. So there you go. <laughs> well, there you go. But I'm bum. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to just point out again that uh, the the makeup of the student body is mostly Latino and African American. Mm. So this is not a frivolous conversation to have about um, who will be uh, invested with the leadership of the Boston City Schools. Yeah. All right, Maria, you pointed out a piece by your colleague Nesto uh, Ramos about looking at the differences between Fall River Mayor Correa Correa, and Daniel Rivera. Of course, contrasting failures of Correa and successes of Rivera. Um, This feels to me as an African-American like, uh uh-oh, Bad black person, good black person. <laughs> Same yeah. scenario. Because I mean, Rivera is the mayor you, of Lawrence. Yeah. 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 How do you feel? 
How do you feel about it? Well, Nestor Ramos is Hispanic. That's important yeah. to note. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, he's he, he's coming at it from a position of a brother. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I what I liked about it, I, I didn't see him comparing um, mayors of color mm-hmm. to each other. Mm-hmm. I thought he was comparing mayors of two cities that have struggled, that uh, mm-hmm. are trying to retain relevance, you know, in, the, in this changing economy. And their economies have just been in the, you know, in the gutter for so long. And Lawrence was just a horror story. I just remember a few years ago doing a ride-along in Lawrence with the police, and it was just a nightmare. I couldn't, I, you know, and, and at the time, there were cuts to, to the police department. There was such a beleaguered force there. And, you know, when Daniel Rivera came in, there was a lot of optimism around him because he seemed to be such a man of integrity. And it seems like that optimism was well-placed. Yeah. He has um, stood up for the people of his city. He responded quite admirably during the Columbia gas explosions. And I think just, just the way that he responded, just being there and being with the people, spending the night in shelters mm. right. with people, he just understands what it takes to get the morale of a community up. And uh, so th- I saw the piece more as a contrast between two mayors of cities that have struggled, where the people are feeling put upon and ignored or insulted. And uh, and here one city has has the right representative and here another city. Not so much. Yeah. The Correa story, I, I just, you know, Massachusetts, know. you know, when know. you just have to go. Massachusetts so, politics. I know. I, I know. How do you have a recall I, I election where even. you get booted out and then reelected? There's a political ego in this, and all. It's like, dude, like let it go. Well, it's okay. Yeah. But to me, it's just like every time I feel like Massachusetts is moving forward, then mm. the, you know a story like the yeah. Fall River story happens, and I just shake my head and I'm like, eh, it's not there yet. I also <laughs> agree with Maria. It's like I don't think it was like comparing the two mayors I and I didn't look at it that way but I I kind of just couldn't get over the fact that someone got indicted and you know it's like a, I, I hey, do love Nestor's uh, there is Buddy comment. Yeah, he, he kind of referred <laughs> to Korea as like the new like, well, yeah. Bunny, like Bunny Cianci Bunny Cianci right. which yeah. I'm like that's a good one Buddy Cianci light that was yeah. pretty adorable yeah. yes <laughs> um, on the uh, presidential uh, on the Democratic side presidential 2020 candidates front is Julian Castro, oh, who is not yeah. getting a whole lot of love right now. Let's take a listen to him. This is uh, his kicking off his campaign launch in January. When my grandmother got here almost 100 years ago, I'm sure that she never could have imagined that just two generations later, one of her grandsons would be serving as a member of the United States Congress, and the other would be standing with you here today to say these words. I am a candidate for president of the United States of America. He's um, not not uh, pulling a lot of attention. He's hoping for a lot of Latino support, but I'm looking at your I, faces and I don't think I, he's getting it. I mean, first of all, in that <laughs> announcement, he, right after he did, he said it in Spanish. Uh-huh, so he okay. totally like sure. let you. Know, okay. So I was very skeptical. You know, having covered politics, yeah. national politics for years, I know Julian Castro well. So I can say this with with, with a lot of, you know, reporting in it. I was very surprised by his announcement, the fact mm. that it was so Latino-leading, leaning, mm. in the sense, mm. like, look, Selena's playing, it's bilingual, <laughs> it's in San Antonio, his twin brother and him take the city bus, and you're like, okay, so this is going to, you know, the only Latino in the race, okay, so this is how he's going to lead, all right. And it, and it, Are you I, saying that you're surprised that he I would? was surprised he did that. Because that's not Because that's not how are? he would, yeah, he's never been, like, it was very, like, and if you look at Twitter and if you look at the day, people were like, oh, my God, there's someone like me. He's running. Like, I re- I can relate to this. And then I'm sitting here going, buddy, like, 
what have you done in the mm. last two months? Mm. I'm going to be honest with you. Their, their strategy is like they got to win Nevada. They got to mm. win the Southwest mm. states. I'm going to win Texas. I'm like, Beto might change that. You know, when Beto O'Rourke came in, like mm. that, that I don't think Julian Castro is going to win Texas. But I do believe that you can't, in this day and age, you need to stand out. And I think if there's any one time that you have to be like, I am the only Latino candidate in yeah. this, like, 19, whatever people, right? right? Yeah. This is the time. Yeah. No. Julian Castro's never been like that. And it's almost like he's trying to figure it out. And I just don't see it, Callie. Uh, Maria, uh, in my African-American community, we would call that being brand new. <laughs> What would you call it in the Latino community? Nuevo. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, it, I, it's funny when I read the story, you know, about Julian Castro coming out as one of the candidates. And all I can think about is Beto O'Rourke comes out and makes, what, $6 million yeah. in fundraising? And it's what was crazy. it, a day or something yeah. ridiculous? And, uh, you know, you compare the level of experience. Um, Beto O'Rourke is a three-term state. Um, congressman, uh, he he, he you know, who lost, yeah, exactly <laughs> against uh, against nickname? the senator, exactly yeah, against a, the a hated real... <laughs> uh, senator, yeah. Yeah. or I don't know, if hated, but yeah. all around disliked um, Senator Ted Cruz, and uh, and and so why can't Julian? Castro get the same attention. Why can't he get generate the same level of excitement? Um, you know, he has a great story. He talk he's about handsome. pulling. He's, he's got handsome. All he's stuff. young. He's yeah. I and mean, he and Be- he's he, you could call him the Hispanic version of Beto O'Rourke, right? <laughs> yeah. And talk about somebody who's pulled himself up by the bootstraps. Right. So his inability to catch on. I don't know if it says something about his clumsy campaigning. There's a lot of clumsy campaigning. Yeah. Beto O'Rourke's campaigning has certainly not been smooth. Nope. As my colleague Vicky McCrane put it, he's acting sort of like Jack Kerouac on a trip to find himself, you know, oh, <laughs> the presidency. Yeah, I mean, but yeah. at least if you told me, like, compare the campaigns, I already know more about Beto's campaign than I do about Castro's campaign. But is that because he's just getting more attention? Say, yeah, exactly. But the point being is that if you said, I'm the only Latino candidate in the race, and, like, you need to pay attention to me, I don't think his campaign... And the thing is, I don't even think you know, his campaign manager, this amazing, like, black activist woman who, mm-hmm. you know... Castro has taken positions on racial justice and social justice and police reform. He visited Puerto Rico. That was his first campaign oh, stuff. He and went down to the border, actually. He went down, you know, and I'm kind of like, yeah, but there's yeah. this moment, and, my, my, yeah. and there's a really good interview, not to plug Latino yeah. USA again, but Maria Nojosa interviewed Julian Castro, and they talk about all this, and it just doesn't, I'm just trying to be like, dude, like, just dive in. Yeah. Dive in. You think well, we'll he's see. holding back from... I think he is, but it's always been, like, Joaquin... Yeah. Who's the twin? Who's got the beard? Yeah. Who's going to probably run for senator against Cornyn? Like, Joaquin's a little bit more like a, you know, he's he's kind of rolling with it some more. I think Julian just needs to loosen up a little bit. Well, we'll see. So take that as friendly and, like... I'd love, love to see Julian try to take New Hampshire. I'm just saying, not take New Hampshire, you know, winning it. I just yeah. mean, you know, take it on the campaign trail. Yeah, I exactly. want to, I really hope that we, we need to, I'm not, I'm not a, a political reporter, but if I were, I'd be. I, I want to go up there. Yeah, yeah putting my hands it. up and saying, I want to yeah. follow Julian yeah. as he tries yeah, me to. Yeah, too. That would be very interesting. I miss Beto this week, but I hope, I'm sure yeah, he'll I'd come be back. More I'm sure I'd Beto's be coming back in the minivan. Much more interested in Julian than, than Beto. I know. All right, I'm, I'm switching topics. Uh, <laughs> and because this was, a, this is going to sound frivolous, but I think it's very important. Uh, Netflix canceled uh, the uh, sitcom One Day at a Time. I literally screamed out loud because I love this show. Love, <laughs> love, love, love. Um, and so the conversation has gotten broader now, not just about the cancellation of one single show, but really about lack of representation of 
Latinos, because this show was just about perfect in terms of what you would want to have to talk about a lot of things. And here's a clip from season two. Um, and the family is schooling their landlord, Pat Schneider, on Che Guevara. What the hell are you wearing? Oh, Che Guevara? Yeah, viva la revolucion, am I right? <laughs> you are wrong. Do you have any idea what this come mierda did? First of all, he wasn't even Cuban. He was Castro's right-hand man. He burned books, he banned music, he personally oversaw execution squads. He was a mass murderer. It's like if you walked into a Jewish home wearing a Hitler shirt. Or into Taylor Swift's home wearing a Kanye shirt. Oh, my God. You guys, I am so sorry. They did a perfect balance, I thought, of humor and uh, talking about serious issues. The acting was superb. You, you know, what are you going to do with Rita Marino? Um, uh, the topics were great. It was very accessible and very right now. I mean, the the, the mother character is a veteran, and so many of the issues that uh, that veterans she's a great, are facing. And Justina Machado, who's a, just she's wonderful. amazing, such a good actress. She's an amazing, so person, an amazing person. Re- respond too. to what this means in terms of uh, representation. Well, number one, I just love that clip that you played because, as somebody who grew up in Argentina and then came to the United <laughs> States and heard the mystique around Che Guevara, and I was always just scratching my head like he persecuted gay men. I mean, what, what, why does everybody worship this man? <laughs> so I just love that they really uh, kept it real there. And that's a really great example of what this show was able to do. Um, they were able to take these issues that a lot of Americans don't know about, a lot of white Americans, I should, I should say, don't know about, and 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 make them funny and make them relatable. And, and in just a few minutes of clip right there, a few seconds of clip, you can hear just kind of a history uh, right there that, that we don't know about. And Netflix is taking it off the air, and uh, it's um, with nothing that makes sense to me. They no. say they're, the numbers are not there. They don't give you the numbers, so they could be, the I numbers have, could be anything. It's it's, it's yeah. first of all on the Che Guevara clip. It, it's the conversation that so many people in Latin American communities have talked about, um, and people should know also that you know the cre- the family comes you know left Cuba, mm-hmm. so I think like. It, it definitely slants towards an exile view of it. Mm-hmm. And, but the notion of Guevara, you know, that type of conversation has been, I've had several like <laughs> dinner conversations <laughs> over several bottles of wine about how controversial Che Guevara is to the, and also in the, in the, in the Latin American left. With that said, I tweeted this out to Netflix because, mm. because that's what I do. Yes. Um, define numbers because this mm. is the problem. I think this is the big problem. I think we hold these sort of cult-like loyal shows that are actually breaking the mold in representation on the same level as as sort of, you know, Stranger Things. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that it didn't need to be Stranger Things. It was perfectly fine for a growing demographic that was like, oh, I either see myself, right, or I relate to it, or I understand this world or where who these people are. Like I I these are people that I might not agree with, like mm-hmm. politically, but I know what they're I see that. And Netflix, they looking at this through the numbers is just it's just insulting. It is insulting. in a lot of ways. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, you know, guys, great job on the representation. And but you know, we're gonna we're gonna cancel you, but it's a great show and you guys did a great time. And it was like and if you really believe in the show, Netflix, then keep the show on. Yeah. How many flipping shows are on Netflix? Is it, you know how many shows are on Netflix that I'm like, why is the show still exactly. on Netflix? Yeah. Believe me, and I'm a, I'm a Netflix person. <laughs> you know, um, you're right? And it's crazy. It, you're right. No. Uh, and it was so well-reviewed. 
Oh, oh it was yeah. critics really liked that and, show. And here's the thing: the biggest demographic, surprise, surprise, young Latina women between like 18 and 35. Hmm, advertisers. Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. Like that that's the crazy. part where I don't get. I don't get it at all. And I I and apparently they're trying to shop it around, but there's something in the contract with Netflix that prevents them from even doing that for two or three years. Right. So it's just a it's just a horrible I'm just sick about it because I was I've been holding, waiting well, for the third well, I, season. And binge, I've had the pleasure you know? <laughs> of we've interviewed Justina Machado yes. and mm-hmm. I've gotten to know her. She's amazing. We also interviewed Rita Moreno for In the Thick, and I was like, I can't believe we're doing this. Uh, we it was know fabulous. that my, my we know the co-creator because we we it's kind of a show that you just you're like I'm gonna help like as a journalist you're like there's certain things you believe like that to me is something that it it met the mission of representation and on top and of that they're it great was, people it's so and it was funny. good it's right. really good and so. you had Tony Planis I know it's just from what Ugly can Betty I, tell you? I was I so happy that he'd found a home and it just it had everything it just, so yeah. I hope somebody I hope it can be all worked out. Okay, speaking of insulting, uh, <laughs> on Fox News, where else? Oh. Um, they go after Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez all the time. Here's how they did it most recently. Here's mm. conservative lawyer Joe DeGeneva mocking AOC on Laura Ingraham's show. You notice that when she she introduces herself, does she take on that Obama? You know, she Obama does, put on accents. She does the Latina thing where she does her, you know, Anastasio Ocasio-Cortez. Um, that's how she pronounces her name. What the heck? I can't even. I, I'm going to let you take this. Well, here's the thing. Julio. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. And my family makes you know my my family my kids make fun of when I when I go on and I'm like this is Julio de Carlo Varela but yeah. it just comes out. I mean if you, and especially if you do a show with Maria Hinojosa. Right. And if Maria Hinojosa says Maria Hinojosa, then I'm going to say Julio de Carlo Varela. Yeah. Okay. That's this, how you pronounce your name. Yeah. This clip, I'm like, I don't care. Like, why are you even talking about this? If Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wants to, wants to say Alex Ocasio-Cortez or if she wants to say Alexandria Ocasio, that's on her. What What's so dumb about this clip was not <laughs> only the fact that it's like the Latina thing, mm-hmm. which I'm like, how insulting is that? Mm-hmm. You know, because it, it basically saying that, you, that your identity doesn't matter and right. we're going to tell you. <laughs> it's like, which I don't even want to get into. But this whole like other part of that clip where he was like, well, if I said my name was Giuseppe De Genoa, how would she? I was like, dude, if you want to call yourself Giuseppe De Genoa, <laughs> right. whatever you were calling, go That's for it. That's how you pronounce your name. Right. But like, who cares? Why is it? Yeah. Why are you guys so afraid of this Puerto Rican Latina woman who, in essence, is changing the political culture, at least on the American left? Mm. And you're scared of her. It's There's crazy. no other way to put you guys are scared of her. She is formidable. And guess who follows her as well? Yeah, Young yeah. Latina women <laughs> yes. that watch one day at a time. Get hello, people. Like yeah. the world is changing. Well, it's another form of dog whistling. Yes, I mean, it is. Exactly. It, I don't know what else you can call it yeah. because it's just a, it's just a way of pointing out that she's quote unquote different. Mm-hmm. She's quote unquote the other. And so is anybody who has a similar name to hers and would dare to pronounce it that way. I mean, I have struggled, you know, I it's I think as a as a Latina woman, sometimes you say Latina woman, sometimes yeah. you say Latina woman. Yeah. I think earlier I said Maduro and then I said Maduro. It, yeah. You you're always kind of trying to adjust. We're code switching mm-hmm. Right. We yeah. always are. Brands. And it's not it's not intentional. It's not it's just something that and then sometimes it is, but you, you there's no it, it, the, the the idea that there's some sort of malintent to it. It's no, it's you're you're adapting to the to the situation that you're in, to the audience that you're in. And this idea also that Obama changes accents and she oh, changes please. accents. Every politician does that. So but don't yeah. even get started. Yeah. Like she tweeted about it and it's like my dad my dad's from Puerto Rico like 
he what called me it? Alexandria. Like, it's like my dad calls my sister Vanessa. Yeah. And then when my sister Vanessa goes to like Puerto Rico, she's like, I'm Vanessa, like, because that's what you hear. So it's like, please stop. Stop oh, I can't, I talking can't even. about this. That is her name. Just don't even <laughs> yeah. talk to me about it. And it's I, a lovely name. I know. So last and very quick, uh, <laughs> she's on the list of women who would be celebrated this Women's History Month, Latina women. Um, who would be your choice? You, Maria. You, I, I, had, I had one. So I, this was a great list. I loved it. It was inspiring. Mm-hmm. The um, the name that I would add to it is Mercedes Sosa. Yes. Mercedes Sosa, um, <laughs> who um, is a Argentine folk singer, legendary. She died in 2009. But, uh, you know, aside from not only, you know, just raising the the, the, the awareness of the Argentine songbook and, and the beautiful music that she sang, she was also a really brave woman. I mean, you know, during the military junta, um, this was a woman right. who was threatened. Uh, her politics were not in line with the with the with the uh, with the military junta in, in charge. And so she was constantly under threat and she refused to leave. She could have left and she didn't. She only left after she was arrested on mm-hmm. stage and detained. And uh, luckily she was able to get out. And then she was like, I got to get out of here um but uh but this is somebody brave. i'd love to see on the list a brave woman wonderful voice um whoever's listening please go on youtube and just google gracias a la vida yes uh, right now and uh you know it, it, even if you don't you speak spanish you will feel it you uh, will well we're gonna post the whole list that somebody made up and which includes celia cruz and some other names people may know um julio do you have a? I, I don't think my boss mariana host is on that uh, list okay <laughs> so i'm gonna be good <laughs> futuro media you know first npr latina correspondent uh cnn correspondent multiple award winner emmy award winner award-winning journalism created her own media company <laughs> makes me you know I'm kind enough to work in that organization, but I'm totally like going with my squad, squad goals, completely biased. <laughs> All right. She was because she's been on other she was on other lists this this month. So I've said Mariana Hosa. Well, locally, I would say Yvonne Garcia. That's my list from State Street Corporation doing yeah. great things. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Amen. Well, that's thank you all for joining me. Thank, thank you, you. Callie. Thanks, Julio Callie. Ricardo Varela is co-host of the In the Thick podcast, Latino USA contributor and founder of Latino Rebels. And Maria Kramer is a reporter at the Boston Globe. Coming up from Rosalind Franklin, whose work led to the discovery of the DNA double helix, to Katherine Johnson, whose math skills were critical to the success of NASA space flights, many women's contributions to STEM fields have been downplayed or even erased from history. A new project by researchers at Brown and San Francisco State University aims to write them back into the books. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. It isn't news that the number of women working in STEM is disproportionately low. What's more concerning is that of the women who do break through, many of their accomplishments go under-recognized or even uncredited. But there is an increasing awareness of this tilted record, thanks to stories like the one in the 2016 film Hidden Figures, which is based on the true lives of a group of black women who were instrumental in sending a man into space. Kiss me up. Kiss me up. 
You have identification on? We're just on our way to work at NASA, sir. I had no idea they hired. There are quite a few women working in the space program. After seeing the film, population genetics researchers Emilia Huerta-Sanchez and Rory Rolfs were inspired to create their own project, recognizing the unnamed women who helped establish their field. They join me now from the studios of KQED in San Francisco, along with one of their students, Rochelle Reyes. Hello to you all. Hello. Hello. I'm so glad to have you. This is an exciting story. I like a medical mystery or a scientific mystery or whatever, <laughs> an historian mystery. It's all together. First, let's uh, just put on the table what you did, Emilia. You were inspired by the film Hidden Figures, and you were having a conversation with Rory. And what happened? Yeah, so after we watched the film, um, we were both surprised that we didn't know the stories of these women. And um, because I have a PhD in applied math, Rory has a training in computer science, and the the work that uh, that's portrayed in the film is pretty, it's something that's really exciting. So we were surprised that even we, people who are scientists, did not know those stories. And so that made us realize that there's probably many other stories of women that we were unaware of. And so from there, Rory, what what got sparked in that conversation? Well, I think in that conversation, Amelia and I remembered this paper that we had read that Amelia had first looked at uh, years ago, where she noticed that the paper was by a single author who was a man and Way down in the acknowledgments, it said, uh, you know, I'm deeply indebted to Mrs. Jennifer Smith for programming and executing and analyzing the simulations, something like that. And, uh, you know, nowadays that kind of work would get you a Ph.D. Uh, and definitely you would be an author on the paper for doing that sort of work. So we remembered that. And then we thought, Let's actually look into that and see how often that happened and see if the people who were acknowledged instead of given authorship were disproportionately women and better understand their contributions to our field of science. So your field, just so everyone knows, is theoretical population genetics. Um, Emilia, I'm going to let you describe what that is in terms that we all down here can understand. <laughs> yeah, so population genetics is the study of genetic variation through time. And so nowadays in population genetics, we use theoretical models to analyze a lot of human genetic data. So now that there's a lot of human genomes, we can we can use these models to study um, all this data that's being generated. So the point of that is, now that you've described it, is my goodness, um, computing all of that stuff, analyzing it is the whole thing, right? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Did I miss something? That's it, right? <laughs> you got it. <laughs> okay, so having Jennifer Smith kind of sidelined or marginalized in this situation was was kind of ridiculous because she was really doing the heart of the work. Yes. So, you know, these days Jennifer Smith would have gotten authorship and a PhD for that work, and at the time she got nothing. Uh, and, you know, to us that's extremely frustrating. And I think what's interesting is at, at the time, it was really normal. So what it brings out is these uh, these kind of norms of authorship, of who gets authorship and who gets credit for scientific work, end up being super important. And at that time, the norms kind of, you know, just set it up so that 
women and technicians didn't get academic credit. So they couldn't, you know, go apply for grants or apply for faculty positions or anything like that. So we're really angry about this now. At the time, you know, we would love to hear from more acknowledged programmers and hear how they felt about it. Uh, but it probably wasn't surprising to them at the time. I think also back then, I, I mean, the early 70s, that was a time when, when geneticists started uh, generating data. So a lot of the theoretical work was done in order to analyze the data that was being generated. And a lot of these authors of those papers, a lot of them, sometimes they didn't know how to program. And so they needed the work of these women to help them program. Or or if they knew how to program, it was still they still needed these women to help them do, to test. It's very common in our field to have a theoretical expectation of something and then to run simulations to make sure that the theoretical expectation is correct. And so a lot, everything that had to do with programming and numerical analysis was often done by, by these um, programmers. So Rochelle Reyes, I did not forget you. Um, <laughs> you and uh, some of your uh, other students uh, played an important part in uncovering the women who were central to this work because um, you, working with Emilia and Rory, did the labor of sort of digging in, trying to figure out who actually was credited and who wasn't, and to figure out who was a woman on these various papers. And that was hard labor, painstaking. (laughs) Tell me about it. So when we all started working on this research project, we had to go through theoretical population biology journals, which at the time are are still currently in library, like in the library, they're actual books, since there were no PDF files online. So me, as well as all the student researchers, we worked on gathering all of those books and going through each article for 1970 to 1990 of all of the journals and going through the 833 articles um, and looking into the authors, the the gender, how many, as well as the actual acknowledgments, if there were any acknowledged programmers, and then deciding whether or not um, we could classify them as programmers as well as their gender. So we should say that it's unusual to have undergraduate researchers on a paper on a project like this. So that's the first thing. Everybody's been impressed by that. But for you specifically, Rochelle, what what did that do for you, uh, doing this work and uncovering the excellence, really, of women who previously had not gotten due credit? Well, for me, it kind of made me feel more empowered to advocate for women in STEM, especially having this research and having it published, we have this information that women did a lot of things um, for a lot of fields, including theoretical population genetics. And we want to show that their work is there and they were a part of it. And it's important that people know that. And it's also empowering because as a woman of color in STEM, it helps me empower others, especially women and people of color. And especially since I believe that if you see a diverse set of people in a field that you're interested in, it makes you want to be in that field. It helps you feel more empowered. 
and invigorated to go into the things that you want to do. So I just want to keep pushing and advocating for that. So this research has definitely helped me drive through that. And we should mention that you want to become a forensic pathologist. So you're using a lot of the skills <laughs> yes. uh, that you employed in, in yes. this research, right? Um, <laughs> or yes. you will be anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the things that uh, I think is so exciting about this uh, for all of you is that in going through the work and finding the names that had heretofore not been known, one of the big ones was Margaret Rue. And I say big because you found her name in so many uh, papers in the acknowledgments, not in the authorship line. Uh, she went on to become a faculty member at the University of Melbourne, but she was not an author. And you actually were able to sit down and do an interview with her. So I want uh, to play a clip of that. This is from Emilia and Rory's interview with Australian statistician Margaret Wu. At that time in your career, had anyone said anything to you about, like, a PhD might be interesting for you? Or, you know, had I know that you weren't pursuing academia, but had it crossed your radar at all at that point? No, not at all. Um, I would say not at all. I got married very young. Um, I was married as soon as I graduated from university. So I needed an income, I guess. Um, so my priority that time was um, was to get a job and have an income. But also nobody mentioned it to you. Nobody said, oh, Margaret, like, you should think about doing a PhD. No, not at all. Well, there you have it. Now, what would have happened if, if someone had? Uh, she would have been on faculty a long time ago. Who knows what other women she would have inspired? Who knows um, how some of that would have changed just by the fact that she was so ever-present in so much of this work. That was really pretty amazing to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, she has an amazing career trajectory. And, yeah, I think if she had been offered a position or had been encouraged, then I think she probably would have gone and done a PhD since she enjoyed doing research so much. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are researchers Emilia Huerta Sanchez, Rory Rolfs, and Rochelle Reyes. We're discussing their work uncovering the names and contributions of the women who helped establish the field of population genetics. All right, so you've done this work. You know enough now, all of you, to know that there probably is the same situation in other fields. Mm -hmm. uh, what are you saying to those as you've presented the work and people have been impressed by it uh, in terms of trying to get some other research going in other fields to see what maybe other hidden figures are there? Yeah, I mean, we, that that is exactly our hope, that people from other fields will see this and then do their own research projects. So part of the reason why this work has been powerful is because Amelia and I are in the field. We're not social scientists coming in from afar. So we, you know, we know the people who are authors on these papers. We're like familiar with the impact of the, you know, different scientific innovations from each paper. So I think it's very exciting to try to get scientists in the field doing this. I think it also raises awareness within the field about the importance of thinking about who's getting credit for scientific labor. And so, so far, you know, we've gotten some good feedback from different people. I've, I'm talking with some developmental biologists who are interested in doing a similar project in their field, and they want to, you know, kind of check in and talk about strategy. Yeah, but uh, we think, I mean, the fact that it's true in our small field, to me, suggests it happened also in other fields that require programming work, um, especially because programming was used to be done 
by women, and then it became uh, a male-dominated field. What would you like to have happen, Amelia, as a result of this? I mean, this opens up a lot of conversation going in many different directions. But what would you like to see as a follow-up to your work? I really want, I really, we really want to extend this work to to other fields in biology and also other fields because, in my opinion, it's what if we're, what we're going to find is that there's been a lot of women doing scientific work. And I really, I really want academic departments to, to teach that to their students. For instance, I only knew that women used to do most of the programming when I was a grad student, which to me seems, I felt, I felt that that was too old to find that out. I talk to people all the time that don't know that. And I think we should know that. It should be something that it's out there and everybody knows because that's going to, I hope, attract more women into STEM. Well, one of the things uh, recently, uh, 60 Minutes did a segment about uh, trying to close the gap in, um, in STEM and specifically computer science. Uh, I wanted to play this clip. This is Bonnie Ross, a Microsoft corporate VP, who says that because the pool of women in computer science is so small and shrinking, it's difficult to find female workers. And many times there's not even a way where I could bring a woman into a specific job because the candidates are just not there. You can't find them. Can't find them. Is it that you're not looking hard enough or they're just not there? They're just not there. So I wanted to play that because I think that, uh, to Rory's point earlier, if you don't see it, um, you don't believe that that's a field that's open to you. And here are all some of the leaders in STEM, like this Microsoft corporate VP, saying we really need more women for a whole lots of reasons, and yet it's very difficult because they're not in the pipeline. Yeah, I mean, I think this is Rory. Okay, so I I would first say, so you know, I got an undergrad degree in computer science, like as a woman in computer science when in the early 2000s when the gender landscape was a little different there. So, you know, there's a joke that there are more people named Dave in the class above me than women, and it it's the joke is not very far from the truth. Um, mm. so I'm very familiar with the the gender representation in the field of computer science. And I guess when I hear that, I feel a little frustrated because right now, you know, I work at San Francisco State University where we have outstanding students. We have majority student of color university. We have many women who are in computer science. And I wish that organizations like Microsoft would look at our students. And I feel like, you know, when they say there are no women here, I'm like, well, what schools are you looking at? Like, where... Where are you trying to find recruit from? So there's a disconnect on many levels. Yeah, I find it a little frustrating. Mm. Well, now you got her name. Yeah, I <laughs> guess so. Tell her. <laughs> you need to tell her that you've got some students. Um, going forward, are you hearing that uh, there will be some follow-up of the same kind of research that you did in any field. Has anybody, when you presented your work and you did at a professional conference, there were a lot of uh, researchers there who were quite intrigued by it. Has anybody said, okay, now we're going to start looking over here? No, they typically ask us to whether we're going to do it, whether we're going to, or they give us tips on <clears throat> what other fields they think the same thing happened. Well, I would just add, there are those developmental biologists who are like, we want to do this. Can you tell us how you did it and give us some tips? Mm. But I agree that mostly, okay. you know, what I've heard is the same as Amelia. People are excited to give us ideas about where we should look or what we should do for this. 
This is not our main research project, so I don't know how much this research is valued academically, for mm -hmm. instance. Mm. So mm. people might be more interested in having publishing research papers that um, because those are going to get them their promotions and so on. And so it's at this point, it's it's not clear whether publishing something like this is going to be beneficial academically. Well, if, it, if nothing ever happens beyond this, um, what you've achieved is, is quite something, actually. And we at Under the Radar like to talk about women who have made history and those who are living history. So what does it feel like to be living history, you three, <laughs> by having done work which identifies women who were history? I mean, it's an honor. It's I, I feel so lucky to work with Amelia and Rochelle and the whole undergraduate team on this project. You know, every person on the project is very is an inspiring scientist who's brought unique contributions to the project. Being able to identify Margaret Wu and talk to her and realize what her scientific contributions are, which are really substantial, is incredible. You know, it's a it's a very humbling experience to even know that these incredible women have been doing this work and are continuing to do this work. So I, yeah, I feel super lucky that I've been able to do this research together with the team. I, I agree with Rory. And I want to say that for us, it's really important to do this type of work. Um, even though I know that it may not be beneficial academically, I think it's very important and nobody's going to do it uh, because the progress that women have made has been been very slow and I feel that everybody has very good intentions but it's not very intentional. Mm -hmm. mm. Rochelle? Uh, I think it's amazing to have worked with um, my PIs Rory and Amelia. They were especially very, they're women and so it was very empowering to be working with women on a project about illuminating women and their contributions. So it's it's an honor as well to hear that, you know, we're a part of this story and that we can uplift this story and all of the women programmers and women in STEM um, and show that, hey, this is a thing. Women have done this work. Women have contributed. And it's important that everyone knows this. And so, again, to be a part of this was an amazing part of my experience at SF State. Rochelle, what's the future of STEM that, from your vantage point now, as you're heading into your own future, your own personal future in STEM? Um, what do you see as a future in STEM for women? Well, I'm hoping to have more diversity and equity in STEM. And so I hope to see in the future more women um, working on research, working in medicine, in engineering, in all of these fields to prove that equity is important. How about you, Rory? I know you weren't so optimistic, but uh, <laughs> about the future of women in STEM. <laughs> well, I mean, like, you got to keep hope, right? <laughs> um, one thing that I really hope comes from this project is an examination of our cultural norms in science. So in this project, something that came out is about how our authorship norms exclude certain groups or how they did exclude certain groups in the 70s and what kind of impact that could have and, you know, how that 
feels for women in, in science today. And uh, as that's getting attention, I hope that we can look at the authorship norms that we continue to have today uh, and see, OK, well, now, you know, if Jennifer Smith was doing that work today, she would be an author. But we're still deciding who gets to be an author and who doesn't. And how we do that mm -hmm. is based in these social norms that aren't structured or consistent. So they are going to exclude certain groups. So I I really hope that something comes out of this is, a, you know, a broader conversation about how we establish academic credit in science. And then, I mean, apart from that, I, I hope that by seeing these women, we are changing the image and the reality of who is doing science uh, and I'm thrilled to work with young scientists moving forward. Emilia? I hope that um, hearing stories like these makes women who are currently doing PhDs in STEM feel a little less lonely. At least when I was a PhD student, sometimes it, I mean, you hear things about, oh, women are not good at this or not good at that and just knowing now that there were all these women that were doing research and supporting this work is very validating um, and so I hope that this starts to change the stereotypes that women can't do science. Well, I thank you all for joining me. The one thing for sure, we hope that none of your work going into the future is ever hidden. We know about it. <laughs> it's out there, and you claim authorship. We're looking forward to seeing uh, what more you will do as you contribute to the fields of STEM. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you thank so you. much. Emilia Huerta Sanchez is an assistant professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at Brown University. Rory Rolfs is an assistant professor at the San Francisco State University Department of Biology. And Rochelle Reyes is a student of Emilia and Rory. She is working towards a career in forensic pathology. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at facebook.com slash under the radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. WGBH.